And around Journey, we're in a series that we call Authentic, and we're studying the Old Testament prophets, and we're learning from them how we can live spiritually authentic, vibrant, real, transparent lives today, in the year 2008. And I leaned into some stuff by Kevin and Sherry Harney and John Ortberg as I prepared this message and this whole series, as a matter of fact. Think with me, if you would, about the boldest thing you've ever said to anybody. Think about that. The boldest thing you've ever said to anybody. Maybe think back to a time when you said something that took way more guts than you thought you ever had in you. Speaking of bold statements, I work out at a place called The Club, and I've got my routine that I do in there somewhere between three and five days a week, can't you tell? And uh, depending on the week and what's going on inside. And the staff of this place is one of my favorite things. Delightful, genuinely delightful people who absolutely love and are passionate about what they do. They foster this cool environment in there. Well, a few weeks ago, I was in there one afternoon, and I was doing my thing, and one of the staff said to me, hey, Brian... We're starting this new class in a couple of weeks, and we think, we've been talking, and we think that you should do this class. And I was like, oh yeah? Well, uh, what's the class? And she goes, it's called Be a Man. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you, you've been talking about me being a man. I'm glad. And I was like, sign me up. I do not ever want to be accused of not being a man. And so I went. We had our first two sessions this week, and it's brutal. Like, being a man is just brutal. At the end of the first session, I was like this, just laying in a heap on the floor. Almost had to have somebody carry me up onto the stage. Today, people are coming in right now. They're going, hey, that man's laying on the stage. What's going on? And the reason I mentioned bold statements is because today we're going to talk about one of the boldest men in all of the Bible, a man named Amos. And one of the boldest men in all of the Bible delivered one of the boldest messages in all of the Bible. Thus, the book of Amos. Our big idea for today says this. God is deeply concerned for the plight of all those who are marginalized and invites us to move from complacency to acts of justice and compassion and thus reflect his care. Get that. God is deeply concerned for the plight of all those who are marginalized and invites us to move from complacency to acts of justice and compassion and thus reflect his care to the marginalized in society. Let's meet the prophet Amos right out of the chutes. Amos is very likely the earliest of what we call the writing prophets. And they call them the writing prophets because they have books of the Bible that are written in their names. And those books contain both the stories of their lives and the messages that God called them to speak. There's several of them in the Old Testament. And scholars date Amos' life and ministry to around 750 BCE. Look at Amos 1.1. If you've got a Bible, you can look there. If not, you can follow along on the side screens. Amos 1.1. This message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in a vision two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. And so we see right out of the shoots, that Amos was not a professional prophet. He was a rancher, farmer dude, and his role was caring for a few sheep and some fig trees. Tekoa, his hometown, was a little village not at all very far from Bethlehem in the southern kingdom of Israel, a place called Judah. And one day you can just picture it. Amos was out tending sheep or caring for fig trees, and here comes God and asks Amos to leave his agricultural career and go preach. 
But it wasn't like a stay right here and preach to your native people thing. Instead, God invites Amos to leave the southern kingdom of Israel, to leave Judah, immigrate up to the northern kingdom, and to preach in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel, around the time Amos was called to preach for God, this is about the 8th century BCE, right? And up north, they were experiencing political success and economic prosperity that had been unknown since the days of Solomon, quite a few days before this. They were living large up in the north. The people had wealth, and they had money, and they were loving life, and they were digging how things were going up there. Their investments were running, I'd say, strong to quite strong. And God sends Amos up there to Samaria. And Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom, the center of wealth and power in ancient Israel. And Amos goes. He just simply obeys God, and he goes, and he starts to preach in Samaria. And the people there, they're wondering what in the world this new prophet from the south is going to have to say. And we get to hear Amos' message. Point two on your notes page. We get to hear Amos' message. Let's look and start in Amos 1.3, and we're going to run through Amos' opening lines of his message, because through his opening lines, he's setting up everything he's going to do for the rest of the book of Amos. If you get the beginning, you'll get the whole thing. This is what Amos 1.3 says. This is what the Lord says. And there's this formula that you're going to see running through chapter 1. This is what the Lord says. The people of Damascus have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. Now, Damascus is the capital of what country? Syria. That's exactly right. Geography geniuses. Good job. Syria, see, is an avowed enemy of Israel. So Amos starts his preaching with a pronouncement of God's judgment on Syria. Why? What did they do that deserves God's judgment? Look at the rest of verse 3. They beat down my people in Gilead as grain is threshed with iron sledges. God's judgment is coming on Syria because they invaded Gilead and they carried out acts of unspeakable cruelty. So God's judgment is coming upon them. That's how Amos launches his prophetic ministry, by announcing God's judgment upon Israel's enemy, Syria. And the people of Israel, they're digging what their new prophet Amos has to say. They really like their new preacher prophet guy. Look at verse 6. Here Amos keeps going. This is what the Lord said. Here's the formula again. The people now of Gaza have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. Gaza was a city of the Philistines, and what in the world did they do to deserve God's judgment? Look at the rest of verse 6. They sent whole villages into exile, selling them as slaves to Edom. The people in Gaza took whole communities of the Israelites and sold them into slavery. The people of Gaza, they're slave traders. And in case you're wondering, God is not for slave trading. He does not like that. Thus his judgment is coming. And Amos, he keeps on preaching just like that. He preaches that God's judgment is going to fall on Israel's most hated enemies, Judgment is coming to Phoenicia and Edom and Ammon and Moab. And Amos details each of the wretched acts that leads to God's judgment upon them. And those wretched acts, they were very well known to the people of Israel. And the Israelites, they are cheering Amos on. You preach it, brother, they're saying. It is very good news. Finally, God is going to deliver the harsh judgment that the enemies of Israel deserve. Then look at Amos chapter 2, verse 4. Amos now starts in preaching against the southern kingdom of Israel, by the way. 
the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. Look at what it says. Here's the formula again. The people of Judah, what? They've sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They have rejected the instruction of the Lord, refusing to obey his decrees. We see God make the charge of rejecting the instruction of the Lord, refusing to obey his decrees only against the people of Judah because the other nations, they did not have the instruction of the Lord like Judah did. And the people who first heard Amos' sermon, first heard Amos' prophecy, they are more pumped than they've ever been. They're going, sweet, Amos even pronounces God's judgment upon his very own native land. Remember, Amos is from Judah. That's bold. Very, very bold, Amos. And they're applauding and they're cheering because they don't even like their neighbors to the south. And see, everything that Amos has done and everything that he's set up to this point is building to chapter 2, verse 6. And the audience in the northern kingdom, they're cheering Amos on, but they do not have a clue about what is about to come out of Amos' mouth. They're convinced that Amos is going to continue to rail on the enemy nations of Israel because God is so tickled with them, because God is on their side, because they are God's chosen people. But the people in the northern kingdom of Israel, they are about to get clobbered with a baseball bat, and they do not even see it coming. Look at Amos 2.6 and understand just how shocking these words would have been. This is what the Lord says. Here's the formula. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust. They shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. In the house of their God, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. And when Amos spoke those words right there, every bit of oxygen in the room got inhaled. It starts to sound all of a sudden like the people of Israel are on the enemies of God list, doesn't it? And that would be because they are on the enemies of God list. And Amos is charging the Israelites for living like God's enemies. And we see that as we read through any of these pronouncements of judgment on the nations, God gives the reason why. He gives the straw that breaks the camel's back for why his judgment is coming. What was it for the Israelites? One thing, and one thing alone. It's the way that people who have abundant resources and claim to love and follow God are treating the poor. God's judgment is coming upon Israel, Amos declares, not because they didn't worship enough, not because they didn't know the Bible well enough, not because they weren't in a small group, not because of a whole lot of things that we might have expected it to be. God's judgment is coming upon the Israelites because of the way that people who have resources and who claim to love and follow God treat the poor. Now what does Amos say about why that makes God so angry? Look at verse 8. We'll start right there. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. Let me show you why that is such a problem to God because it isn't real clear just by reading those words, is it? If you've got a Bible, you could turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. You could also look on the side screens. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 10. 
And in the book of Deuteronomy, God is laying out what he intends for his community of his redeemed people to look like and act like. God is making it very clear through his servant Moses how he intends for his people, his community, his nation to be a light, a brilliant light to the other nations of the world. How they are, as God's people, supposed to be different. And God gives examples of what their community, what that community is supposed to look like. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 10. If you lend anything to your neighbor, do not enter his house to pick up the item he is giving as security. You must wait outside while he goes in and brings it out to you. If your neighbor is poor and gives you his cloak as security for a loan, do not keep the cloak overnight. Return the cloak to its owner by sunset so he can stay warm through the night and bless you, and the Lord your God will count you as righteous. Now here's what's in view. When someone who had a lot of resources loans money or grain or anything to the poor, the poor are required to give collateral. It's just good business practice, isn't it? And if they don't have anything else, they are to give their clothes, their outer garment, their cloak, or their robe. But if they give their cloak, if they give their robe, what in the world do they have to keep them warm at night? Nothing. They do not have anything to keep them warm at night. It isn't, around, it isn't like it is around our homes where we literally have closets full of blankets and such and an unlimited supply of heating fuel. Their cloak or their robe is all they've got to keep them warm. And so God says, so take their garment that is collateral back to them at night so that they can sleep through the night in comfort. But here's what Amos points out, that the people of Israel, they keep the garments of clothing taken from the poor as collateral. They keep them all through the night and they leave the poor to shiver in poverty. But God says, "Huh." uh not in my community, not in my community, not my people. God makes it explicit as he is developing the ground rules for his community, for his people, that it's going to be different there than it is everywhere else on planet earth. His community, his people are going to be a model and people who are forgotten and marginalized and neglected in all the other societies on the face of the earth, they're going to be remembered and they're going to be prized and they're going to be valued in God's community. There are over three dozen verses in the Old Testament alone in which God prescribes justice and compassion for the marginalized in society, for the foreigners and for the orphans and for the widows. And Amos says, look, God judges a society by the way they treat marginalized people. God judges societies by the way they treat marginalized people. God makes it very clear that he is the protector of the weak. He is the protector of the marginalized. He is the protector of the outcast and the downtrodden in a society. And he also makes it very, very clear. If you oppress them, if you oppress the marginalized, then you oppress me. If you neglect them, God says, you neglect him. Which means that for us today, there is an incredibly serious implication about God's heart for the marginalized and our position as his people. God says, look, my people will have a heart like I have. God's people will care for the people that God cares for. God tells us that we as his people are to have a fierce love for those who are watched over by God himself. This is incredibly serious. This isn't just fad or hobby, like 
idol gives back one night of the year kind of stuff that we're talking about. This is dead serious. Look at this from the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Let that wash over you for a moment. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? And notice that the text there says, shows no compassion. It doesn't say anything about just how we feel toward the marginalized in society. Not just how we feel. It's talking about actually doing something compassionate for them. The question at the end of that verse is totally rhetorical. How can God's love be in that person, those people? It can't. It's not, is the answer. And from the start of the Bible all the way through to the end, the text says that our hearts for God will be revealed by what we do. Not just what we feel. Not just how we think. But what we do for the least of these. That's what Jesus called them. The least of these. And Amos' challenge, see, around the 8th century BCE, is to confront a society that is so addicted to its own comfort so addicted to its own security, so addicted to its own prosperity that they do not give a rip about the marginalized in the society. Flip back in your Bible to Amos chapter 6, if you would, if you've got a text. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Look at what Amos says now. What sorrow awaits you who lounge in luxury in Jerusalem, you who feel secure in Samaria, you are famous and popular in Israel, people go to you for help, But how terrible for you who sprawl on ivory beds and lounge on your couches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock of choice calves fattened in the stall. You sing trivial songs to the sound of the harp. You fancy yourselves to be great musicians like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfume yourselves with fragrant lotions. You care nothing about the ruin of your nation. Therefore, you will be the first to be led away as captives. Suddenly, all your parties will end. Amos is saying, if he were speaking in modern terms, you spend all your time trying to figure out just how to get a bigger house. How can I have nicer things? How can I go eat at better restaurants? How can I take more expensive vacations? How can I get a newer, nicer car? Amos says, you're so concerned with thinking about all those things that you don't think about, weep about, care about, do anything about those in your community who have no home, no job, no car, no food, no family, no healthy influence in their lives whatsoever, no future. They're just existing. Amos says, you care nothing about the ruin of your nation. You care nothing about the marginalized in society. You don't even think about them, Amos says. And in Amos chapter 2, verse 6, Amos says these words, speaking of the people of Israel. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. And for the marginalized in a society, you know this, even shoes, something so rudimentary as shoes, are a very big deal. My friend Shane Claiborne, some of you may know who he is, he spent time one summer working alongside Mother Teresa not very long before she died. And Shane tells the story of how one day he was working side by side with Mother Teresa. Imagine what that would have been like, working side by side with Mother Teresa. And there he is, kind of arm in arm with her, serving with her. And he was noticing Mother Teresa's feet. 
And her feet were haggard and ragged, and her feet were literally entirely misshapen, very badly misshapen, Mother Teresa's feet were. And Shane, he didn't have the guts to just ask Mother Teresa, hey, what's the deal with your feet? You know, it's kind of a rude question, right? But he did go to somebody else in the community and ask them. And this other person in the Sisters of Charity community in Calcutta told them that, well, Shane, among the poor, there are never enough shoes, right? And because of that, Mother Teresa absolutely insisted that whenever shoes got donated, whenever they got a load of shoes from somewhere, wherever they come from, that the best be given away first. The best were given away to everyone else, leaving only the very worst shoes for herself. That means that Mother Teresa spent decades, literally decades of her life, wearing the worst shoes, utterly awful shoes, which thus left her feet very badly deformed. And what's in view here in Amos is Amos is saying, look, a poor person is in your debt. And that poor person, their life is not worth much, financially speaking. If you were to sell them into slavery, you wouldn't be able to get much for them. Maybe you'd be able to get a pair of sandals for them. And Amos says, but you do it anyway. You do it anyway. You make people slaves to get a pair of sandals. Your hearts are more set on a pair of shoes than on a human being who is in need of help, Amos says to the people of Israel. And that's just how the world works, right? The weak, they're always at the mercy of those who hold power. And we know power, don't we? We like power. We like clout and we like influence. And just in case you didn't know, newsflash, this is an election year, right? No, 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 newsflash. Everybody knows that. We wish we could miss it, right? We're like playing a game of how long can a campaign go, right? And we all know that some politicians are especially adept at wielding power over those with little or no power, aren't they? And I read a story, a great story this week about Mayor Daley in Chicago, the first Mayor Daley. And Mayor Daley was famous for a whole bunch of things, one of which was his self-confidence, his brashness that bordered right on the line of arrogance. And one day, one of Mayor Daley's speechwriters came into his office and said, look, I'm not making nearly enough money. I really need a raise. And it wasn't a greed deal. He just said, look, I'm having a very tough time feeding my family and such. Could I please have a raise? And Mayor Daley looked at him, and Mayor Daley, he wielded a whole bunch of power. He could have said, absolutely, you get a raise. But instead he said, I'm not giving you a raise. It should be enough for you to work for a great American hero like me, he said. And that was the end of the discussion, or so he thought. And some weeks later, Mayor Daley was on his way to give a speech. One of the other things that Mayor Daley was famous for was never reading his speeches until he got up to deliver them, which meant that he also was famous for like bungling words and through the message because he had never seen it before. It was new to him every time as he was delivering it. And on this particular day, Mayor Daley, he stood up and he was speaking to a very, very large group of veterans at a Veterans Day celebration. It was being covered by press from around the country, around the globe even. It was being televised live and such. And Mayor Daley, he began his speech and was talking about the plight of veterans in our country and how often they, as veterans, are marginalized and forgotten. And he said, look, veterans, I know that lots of people in our world forget you, but not me. 
He said, I do not forget you. And as he was delivering the speech, Mayor Daly, he could kind of stand outside of himself and he was quite impressed with his eloquent and impassioned delivery. He said, I do not forget our veterans. And to prove that to you today, I am hereby proposing a 17-point federal, state, and local program to help make sure that the veterans of this country are not forgotten. And by this time, everyone in this very large crowd and everybody watching at home on television, they're like on the edge of their seats, right? They could hardly wait to hear what Mayor Daly was about to propose. Daly himself was quite excited to see what he was about to propose, right? And as he turned the page over, all that was printed on that white sheet of paper was, you're on your own now, you great American hero, you. Oh. And we get that don't we? We know what it is when some people have power and how they use that power creates all kinds of resentment and all kinds of hostility. And Amos, he was looking into the eyes of an entire culture of people who felt absolutely entitled to all the money and all the power that they held. They thought they deserved everything they had. And they forsook and they forgot God's vision for a just and compassionate society when God had just about hand-delivered the instructions to them about how it was supposed to be built and how it was supposed to go. And Amos says to them, Look, do you think that God was just joking when he gave us his law? Do you think that God doesn't look down here and see exactly what's going on? Do you think that God really doesn't care, that he really didn't mean what he said? Do you really think that you can take all of your resources, which, by the way, all come from God's hand, and use them in whatever way you choose, and then get mad at God if he just doesn't keep sending you more and more and more? That's Amos' challenge to the people. And at this point, Amos was open to using any tool he could to wake them up and help them get about the task of growing a heart like God's heart. Look at Amos 4.1. Talk about speaking bold words. This is absolutely unbelievable. Amos is talking to the wealthy. He's talking to the powerful. And look at what he says. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who are always calling to your husbands, bring me another drink. And how do you think those women felt when they heard those words? Mm, Stings. And see, Amos, he's just not being mean here. He's not just giving uh, like random name calling here when he calls these gals fat cows. Just think with me for a moment about the nature of a cow, if you would. Cows, they are not at all very well known for doing good deeds, are they? Cows, they just don't do good deeds. Just think about a cow. Think about their life. Now, lots of other animals do good things. Like dolphins, they do good things. Like Flipper, you know, Flipper does good things, right? Dogs like Lassie and St. Bernard's, they do good things. But cats, they do not do anything good. They're just taking up space. Amen to that. Cows and cats, they go together. They do not do good things. Cows are literally just walking appetites. A cow's single-minded focus is, how can I get more? That's all they're thinking about, if they're even able to think about it. How can I get more? And a lot of human beings live just that way, don't they? 
focused on one thing. How can I get more? And the people to whom Amos was speaking, they made absolutely zero connection between their treatment of the marginalized and their relationship with God. They were a worshiping people. They were a sacrificing people. But they were living in the illusion that because their life was going good, that God was happy with them. And Amos' warning and Amos' challenge just keeps coming. He does not relent. Look at Amos 5.21. Here's what Amos says. I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And imagine the shockwaves that would have reverberated through the crowd when Amos spoke those words. Their heads were spinning. God is saying to the people, look, your worship and your lives, they cannot be separated. Either you're authentic, either you're the real deal, or you're not. You cannot hoard wealth, you cannot trample the poor, you cannot oppress the weak, and then come to church as if God does not know and God does not care. Amos says, just be real. Just be authentic. God is being very clear that there is no dichotomy between the two. Life does not work that way. Treating people unjustly and then living a spiritually authentic life cannot in any way coexist. And look at verse 24. This is one of the boldest and greatest statements in all of the Bible, in my opinion. Instead, Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice an endless river of righteous living. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? God is saying, let justice and let compassion flow out of your lives. Don't just sit there, Amos says, eating huge quantities of food at your religious feast while the poor are starving to death on your front porch as you congratulate yourself on how much you love God. Don't do that, Amos says. It's time for there to run a river of righteousness and a river of justice, and I want my people to be the ones who make this dream a reality. But how many people never ever connect their relationship with God and their treatment of the poor and their treatment of the marginalized? But in chapter 7 of Amos, God gives us an unforgettable picture Amos chapter 7, verse 7, you can turn there. And see, God begins this section of the text by saying that he is going to wipe the people of Israel out. He's absolutely had it. He's had it up to here. He's done. He's going to wipe them out. So he gives Amos a vision. And the first vision God gives Amos is one of him sending locusts to wipe out the people, the land of Israel. But Amos cries out to God and says, God, please, please don't do that. And God relents. He doesn't send the locusts. But then God is fed up, and so he gives Amos a vision of fire, judgment and destruction by fire to wipe out the nation of Israel. But Amos cries out to God, asking him to relent, and God does. And then look at verses 7 through 9. This is Amos writing. And then he, that's God, showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it, the wall, was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. 
I will no longer ignore all their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined. The temples of Israel will be destroyed. I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. He showed me a vision of a plumb line. And we have one right up here. This is a plumb line. And uh, this isn't mine. I don't own a plumb line. I had to borrow it. I wouldn't know what to do with it. I had to learn about it. And this plumb line is something else. It has this little plastic tip. I know it's hard to see, but you take that tip off, and it is a weapon. You ain't going to carry that onto an airplane, I promise you. I'm going to put the cover back on so I don't hurt myself. Be careful. And they call these things a plumb line, they tell me, because they used to make these weights out of lead, Uh, But then people were like gnawing on them and getting lead poisoning, and that wasn't good, so they changed it to some other material. Well, the Latin word for lead, you'd probably know this, is plumbum. So that's why they call it a plumb line. Some people call it a plumb bob, I think because a Latin guy named Bob invented that thing. Not sure if that's true. And God shows Amos a vision of a plumb line. And that plumb line deal, it's real, real easy to understand, isn't it? That plumb line, it's a standard. Just get that in your head. A plumb line is a standard. And it's a standard that tells us if something is crooked or if something is straight. And a plumb line is an absolute standard. A wall, just like that one, is either straight, it's either true to plumb, or it's not. This one, you might be able to see, is not at all on plumb. That wall is off plumb. And that right there, a wall that is off plumb, is just how God saw the nation of Israel. Why? Because of the way that they were treating the poor, the way that they were treating the marginalized in society, the nation, the people of Israel, they were a crooked wall, a wall that was off plumb. Now, I know a few carpenter types. We have quite a few of them right here in our community. And carpenters, if you know anything about them, they're not really into the whole relativism thing, right? You will not ever hear a carpenter say, like let's say you bought a house from one of them and you move into it and you find out that the whole thing is crooked. It's like that leaning tower thing over in Italy, right? And you're kind of frustrated. So you call up your carpenter, your builder, and he comes over and and you say that the house is crooked. You will not ever hear a carpenter say, I promise, well, you have your plum and I have my plum. You will not ever hear a carpenter say, we all have our own plum, and it's a beautiful thing if our plums should ever meet, but if they don't ever meet, well, that's a beautiful thing too. Everyone has their own plum. Don't try to inflict your plum on me. I won't try to inflict my plum on you, right? Your house may not be plum to you, but it's plum to me. Carpenters would never say that sort of thing. Plum is just plum. In Bozeman, And in Beijing and in Birmingham and in Battle Ridge and in Baltimore, over in Bath, England, and I think even in Butte, plum is plum. (laughs) Plum is plum. And plum is the standard. And I wonder how plum God would say our wall is. I just wonder. How plum would God say our wall is? How plumb are we as a society? How plumb are we as a community? How plumb are we as individuals? And see, here's the deal. You know this. We do not live in a plumb line society, do we? 
In our world, we rather like to measure ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. And when we do that, we're always capable of finding somebody who is doing worse than I am at just about anything. And that makes us feel like, well, I'm not doing so bad. I'm doing okay. We can always find somebody who's way more greedy than us and say, well, at least I'm doing better than them, right? And God says, Amos, look at this. What do you see? And Amos says, I see a plumb line. And God says, I am setting a plumb line among my people. And I am measuring my people by the one standard that counts the one standard that is true and just and holy and right, and it is a very simple standard, Amos. Are there hungry people? Feed them. Are there sick people? Help them. Are there oppressed people? Stand up for them. Are there lonely people? Visit them. Are there uneducated children? Teach them. Are there people who get rejected because of the color of their skin? befriend them. God says, with the aliens and with the widows and with the orphans, with the marginalized in your midst, treat them like you treat me. That's God's standard. That's plumb according to God. What about your life? Is your life plumb according to what God's standard of plumb is? I gotta be honest with you, mine's not. Mine's not. I get this stuff wrong way more than I get it right when it comes to what I'm doing with regard to the marginalized in society. But here's what I notice about my own life. Maybe you find this to be true for you as well. That when I do something, when I do something for the marginalized in society, even very small things, that my heart after God and my heart for the marginalized in our world, it enlarges just a little bit and my heart gets just a little bit softer and my life gets just a little bit more true to plumb according to God's standard of plumb. And I've noticed, I'll bet you have too, that if we're just going with the flow of society here when it comes to our care for the marginalized for the poor and such, if we're just going with the flow of society, that that drift will not ever carry us toward plum as God defines plum. It actually carries us in quite the opposite direction, doesn't it? But envision with me for just a moment, if you would, what it might look like if this little community of faith and hope called Journey Church actually got around what Amos calls for. What if we became such a community of compassion and love and service that we covered our little corner of the planet with a blanket, picture that, of generosity and care? And when we think about this kind of stuff in the church world, sometimes we go like, all right, we're going to roll out a whole new ministry to meet this new ministry need, this new call from God on our lives. And so we hire staff and we chart organizational structure of this new ministry. We fund it then with budget dollars and such, and that's all well and good and necessary with lots of ministries. We'll do that a lot more over the decades around here. But the care for the marginalized and the poor in society is different because you and I are invited every single day to have God's heart for the marginalized and to do something about it every single day with just what we have. 
with just what we have. And here's what happens. Lots of us, I'm included in this. I go, wow, the need of the poor and the marginalized is so immense and vast, and I have no idea where to start, and I don't think that my little individual contribution would even make a dent in that enormous need. And you just might be right if you said that. But yours and God's contribution can and does make a dent. And with what's in view in the Bible, I do not think that we at all get the luxury of just sitting on the sidelines, watching it all unfold, waiting for other people to do something. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. We've got to try at least. And so you go, where do you start? Where do you begin? And this isn't cliche, not at all. You could begin very honestly in prayer. In prayer, a very simple, humble prayer to God. What could I do, God, to serve and help the marginalized in society? Just start with prayer. And don't go in with an agenda. Just go in with a a listening ear. And maybe, I'm not suggesting that this is exactly what God's going to say, but what if God said to you, well, you could give financially to the marginalized. You could give through organizations that you know are going to maximize you're giving, you could give financially. And lots of times, I know I'm right with you. We go like, but I'm tapped out. I don't have anything left to give. I'm marginalized, as a matter of fact, when it comes to my finances. That's what lots of people say, right? But here's a novel concept. It's novel for me, at least. It might not be for you. But what if we consumed less so that we could give more? It's a novel concept. What if we consumed less so that we could give more? I bought a Sims fishing jacket this week. I've been looking at it for a very long time. I've been thinking about it for literally like six months now. And I finally was like, I'm getting the Sims fishing jacket. And you know, I didn't have to have it. I didn't need it. I don't fish all that much. It's a beautiful jacket. But I took it home and I opened up a closet that was full of jackets. I was like, how in the world am I going to get this jacket into this closet that's already full of jackets? I did not need that fishing jacket. It's cool, but I didn't have to have it. The $4 cup of coffee that I bought this week, I didn't have to have that. It was not essential to my life and to my well-being. What if God asked you to consume less so that you could give more? Maybe God would ask you to give to organizations that serve the marginalized in society. Maybe, maybe... God would ask you to just befriend a person who you know is living on the margins of society. Just befriend them. Stop ignoring them. We all do it. Stop ignoring them. Invite them into your home for a meal. Take them a meal if inviting them into your home doesn't fit with you. Ask them, is there something that I could do to serve you? Is there any need in your life that I could meet for you? with you. Maybe God would suggest to you that you could serve the marginalized through an organization where that's what they do. There's lots of them out there. Journey has more than one way to serve the marginalized, more than one ministry. Some more are coming down the pike. But just go, put a serving towel over your arm and say, I'm investing these hours of my day into the marginalized in our society. Go and serve. The point is, just start by asking God what he might be inviting you to do for the marginalized, and then just go do it. Just go do it. And here's the deal. 
You never know the difference that just one person, you, can make. You never know the difference. There was one time this shepherd, his name was Amos, and he had a few sheep, he tended a few figs, and God said to him, go, Amos. And he went. He listened to God. He obeyed God. And almost 3,000 years later, the human race, us, are still being shaped and awed by the words of Amos about what makes a just and a loving and a plum society in God's eyes. You just never know, do you? You just never know. I'm going to invite you to take your things, if you would. Just set them aside. And I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Would you just speak to God about what it is that you're thinking about? Just tell God what's on your heart and your mind. You can do that now. I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you would, for the next couple of moments. Would you drive a stake in the ground today? And just say, God, I'm asking you the question. What can I do to serve the marginalized in society? What can I do? And then just give him an ear. Just listen in. And if he asks you to do something that feels a little uncomfortable to you, just say, all right, I'll do that. I'm going to need some help with that, God. I'm going to need some courage and some boldness and some strength to do that because that's way outside my comfort zone but but all right ask God give him an ear and then when he speaks to you he will and go do what he asks you to do don't leave today without pounding that stake of commitment into the ground cement it in yeah God I'm going to do that yeah, God, I'm going to listen. I'm going to give ear. And maybe you're sitting in this room today, and as you reflect in these moments of quiet and stillness, the Holy Spirit of God has been working in your life, and you know beyond the shadow of any doubt that you don't yet have a relationship with Him. But I want you to know that it doesn't have to stay that way. I want you to know that God doesn't even want it to be that way. See, God loves you. God loves you, and he loves you so much that he made a way for you to have a relationship with him. And he did that by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to be your savior, to be the rescuer of your soul. And you can begin a relationship with him by putting your faith in him, by putting your trust in him. You can begin a friendship with God today, right now, right where you're sitting. And if that's you, if that's the decision of your heart today, I'd invite you to express that to God by praying along with me right now, right where you're sitting. You can pray a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy. 
and that God, my sin has separated me from you. But God, I believe with everything in me that Jesus died on the cross for that sin, my sin. And would you please forgive me? Would you please send Jesus to live inside of me? God, I want to be your friend. I want you to change me. I need you to clean my life up, please, God. And starting today, God, you're in the driver's seat of my life. You're the boss. You're my life manager, starting right now. And if you prayed with me just then, I want you to know that that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight than that. And around here, we believe it's such a big deal that we actually invite people to let us know when they made that decision. Nobody's going to embarrass you and Nobody's looking around this room but me. I'm just going to ask you, if you prayed with me just then to give your life to God, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me? Just say, yeah, I, I did that. I'm beginning right now a friendship with God. Just make sure, yeah, you sir back there, way to go. God's changing you right now, and you too, you guys, both of you up there, way to go. You're stepping into life with God. Make sure I catch your eye if you would, please. I don't want to miss anybody. Yeah, you over there, way over there, way to go. Right now, God is changing you and he's making you, and you too, sir. Right now, you're stepping into life God's way. It's a whole new world, and you too, up there in the bleachers. thanks for the gift of your son Jesus and God thanks for the invitation into life your way thanks for Amos speaking it so boldly to us you help us get it God about how we could properly reflect your care to the marginalized in society we want to get it right we want our lives to be plumb God we want you to look upon us as individuals and as a community called Journey Church and we want you to smile and say, yes, you're getting it right. We want to do that for you, God. And we want to do that for the least of these. Help us get it done. Give us innovation and creativity. Give us courage to step out of our comfort zone, God. We lean into you. We lean into you and we love you. And the church said, Amen.